Cacao is a weather-resilient, high-value crop that is ideal for farming in the Philippines, a country that is highly affected by climate change. In this B-Side episode, multimedia reporter Joseph L. Garcia talks cacao farming, climate change, and rethinking what a farmer looks like with Luis Mabulo, founder of the Cacao Project. Congratulations for your, you were in the list for the BBC 100 women list. Right. Yes. Okay. So how did you get into that list? Um, I think I got into this list. It was by a nomination basis. So I was nominated by um, UN Women, which is this incredible organization that I've been associated and affiliated with for a while through their 30 by 2030 network. And it's a network that helps them design campaigns, um, really steer the direction of UN Women's kind of youth-based leadership within young people. And we help them create these campaigns or attend events and also curate some sessions at UN Women events. And I don't know why they picked me, but I'm very grateful because they're incredibly lovely people. And um, of all the incredible people in the network, it was really an honor to make it as um, one of their final nominations and then eventually to the BBC list. Okay. And then also right after this, you're jumping into a meeting with the United Nations Environment Program, right? Mm -hmm. Okay. So what do you do with that? So with UN Environment Program, I'm one of their Young Champions of the Earth, which means that um, for many years in 2019, I was awarded as one of their Young Champions. And they were incredible, wonderful people who provided support to my project. I was able to get a grant from them in the beginning that helped me jumpstart and really scale the cacao project to be what it is today. And they've been incredibly supportive and they still to this day design beautiful campaigns on environment, sustainability. They've covered my work um, in the past with uh, what we do in agroforestry, but also in terms of generally shifting food systems mindset. And I think that the work they do is incredible at an international level and impacts us here in the Philippines all the more. Okay, I assume that you are all, both on these programs and lists because of the Cacao Project, which you started in 2018, right? So could you tell me yeah, when, no and how, when and how you got started with the Cacao Project? Like, I know that it happened because of the storm, right? That's right. So the Cacao Project began in um, after Super Typhoon Not 10 hit my hometown. And this That's was this Sur, big right? event that happened in Camarina Sur, yes. So it was December 25, Christmas Eve. And it was my very first experience of a huge super typhoon. And I realized very quickly that, you know, many of our farmers were experiencing yearly typhoons and even worse storms and climate disasters. And we're just kind of recovering from it after every typhoon and then would continue what they were doing as is without doing any adjustments or changes to their farming practices with the climate crisis in mind. I mean, the farmers, if you ask them, they're aware that there is a change in the weather patterns, but they're not aware of what they can do to change. Because if you ask them, they've been farming rice and coconut all their lives and there's never really any capacity building program to help them transition from what they're doing to something that is more resilient or tailor fit to our landscape. So all the time when you have programs around agriculture, it was focused on how to make more production, more food, more income for farmers, but it wasn't really tailor fit to, oh, what will produce better for our landscapes? What will produce better for our regions? What will produce better with typhoons in mind? And so that was one of the things that I wanted to address when I began the cacao project. It began as a seed exchange program, more of getting people to plant more diversified seeds and changing um, the way that we were farming from just long-term crops to short-term and medium-term crops. But then over time, it started transitioning some more to training programs 
So we had farmer field schools where we trained farmers on finance, on landscapes management, cultural management, on cacao growing and agroforestry, which was really important to build resilience into how they were growing food. And then over time, um, that became what we are today, which is helping farmers build a business, really, where they can make their own chocolates, have post-harvest processing facilities, and also bring it to market and to trade fairs. So it's really a way to support them all the way from every step of the value chain, from planting trees to actually selling and producing chocolates, which is something that people wouldn't do because the risk is too large and it's such a long-term investment into a community. Okay, so from when you started in 2018, where are you now? So right now we're with farmers, working with them to build businesses. At the moment, we've got 16 farmers who are currently trading and making chocolates in some shape or form. We've worked with over 200, but around a little more than half, I guess, is already producing cacao beans, selling them, processing them, trading them with other community members. But 16 have come to market with different products. We've got farmers who are selling cacao teas. They've got chocolates. They've got cacao vinegars. And then we've also transitioned into leaf lamps. So I have these cacao leaf lamps. I have a bunch of them around my room, scattered around. But they're basically these lamps that are made out of a waste product from cocoa trees. And it's pretty incredible because it's formerly a waste product. And now farmers can make money out of the leaves themselves. So it's called the cacao product, but you don't just plant cacao, right? No, we don't just plant cacao. We plant everything that is suited to our ecosystem because we realize that if you only plant cacao, it's a monoculture. It's very unsustainable. Um, but if you try to diversify what you're planting, number one, the farmers will have more food for subsistence. They can do whatever they want with short-term crops as long as it's for either their own production or eat it consumption or for whatever they want to bring to the market or support their existing product. But also more diverse plant or agroforest produces more crops, it encourages biodiversity, it enriches the soil. So it's good business sense for the farmers to diversify than just do a monoculture. Okay, but at the same time, your main crop is cacao because you've got the idea for the chocolates and the waste product and all that you're doing, right? Okay, so why did you choose cacao as a crop? Okay, so cacao as a crop is, number one, When after the typhoon, we had to evaluate our crops. We could have planted moringa or jackfruit or soursop or all sorts of other things that we have. But number one, there's a global market deficit of chocolates. The world needs more chocolates. And because of climate change and the way that chocolate is produced in other countries, which is incredibly unsustainable and fuels deforestation, we need more chocolates. And so this is something that's easy for farmers to bring to a market. There is an existing market demand. Second is that it is a high value crop that its prices can be dictated by existing trade routes. And if you cut the middlemen out, farmers can dictate the prices of their chocolates, which is which puts more power back into the hands of farmers rather than into just hands of tradesmen and middlemen that are taking away most of the profit from them. And then on the other part, it's more resilient to typhoons. So uh, cacao trees around like a person height. Ideally, a perfect like cacao tree that's growing is never too tall, never too short. So it doesn't easily get flooded and it doesn't easily get cut down by high winds, which is vital for our landscapes because we have high winds, we have floods, we have droughts. And so cacao trees are kind of more resilient rather than a coconut that would take many, many years to recover after a storm or even rice, which would get flooded out. They would lose like nearly 80% of their harvest in a typhoon season, which is a waste. But if you do cacao, within two weeks, it starts to regenerate again. And beyond just the pods, you can also monetize the leaves, which is what we're doing with the fossilized cacao leaves that we're turning into lamps, wallets, bags, and all sorts of different products. So while farmers are waiting for the pods, which are an income stream, they can already monetize the leaves that are coming out of it. And that's a natural process of pruning, which has to be done in the first place um, for cocoa. 
So okay. it was just the more sustainable, easy crop. And it was something that was already growing here. So in the 80s, Bikol region had like a huge cacao industry that slowly died off because their market buyers weren't around or whichever middlemen they traded to had stopped trading with them. So it was really a matter of revival of a pre-existing industry that was abandoned um, just because of a couple market gaps. And then... How is agriculture, why is agriculture important in addressing climate issues? I mean, I understand how it helps other people, but how does it help the planet exactly? Okay, so agriculture contributes 30% of global greenhouse gas emissions worldwide. That means that through unsustainable production, agriculture is 30% of the climate solution if we transition it. Now, the other major contributor and polluter to climate change is energy. That's fossil fuels, that's oil and gas. But in terms of transitioning oil and gas and energy sector, it's not like we can easily snap overnight, change the way that we are consuming. We still have cars, we still have electricity, we still have homes, and that can easily be changed into renewable energy. It takes a huge step in transition. So the next industry that we can transition much easier is agriculture. It may not be an overnight transition, but existing monocultures and farms can easily be changed into more sustainable practices. And it will take behavioral shifts, but it's not as drastic as the energy sector. So agriculture contains 30% of the solution to the climate crisis. But beyond that, we're also seeing not just the climate crisis, we're seeing a triple planetary crisis, that's pollution, biodiversity loss, and carbon emissions. Now, with biodiversity loss, our soils are also losing about a football field for more every three seconds of um, of their biodiversity. That's the worms, the creatures that keep soils alive because soil is a living being. So with the current state of soil degradation, the FAO predicts that we have less than 60 years of harvests left. If we keep extracting at the rate that we're extracting today, that means we're seeing less harvest because the soils aren't able to provide the nutrition for trees and for growth. And that would mean that we need to use more chemicals and unsustainable fertilizers that further <laughs> remove biodiversity. But because of the population growth worldwide, we need more about we need about 70% more food by 2050. But we're experiencing less harvest. So number one, it's a food security crisis that we're facing. And number two, it's also the fact that agriculture is the key to solving climate change if we're going to make an industry level transition. Okay. And then according to your listing in the BBC 100 Women list, you revolutionized local food systems through sustainable agroforestry, empower farmers, dismantle destructive food systems. How were you able to do that with planting and what is your progress rate on that? Okay, so with our what we're doing with planting is more than just planting, it's also cultivating forests, right? So many tree planting projects fall off in that they're only planting trees and then they leave them. And sometimes that doesn't mean that it's able to grow. So the environmental consequences of just planting a tree and then leaving it is actually really great because you've used up manpower and trees and resources to revive a piece of land, but it's actually just greenwashing. For us, we cultivate it over the span of years within a community. So progress for us is much slower than like just saying that we planted trees. It's also making sure that those trees grow and sequester carbon and revive a biodiversity. But on top of that, one of the things that I really believe strongly in is dismantling stigmas. So here in the Philippines, we have the stigma in many places in Asia that Farming is associated to poverty or failure. You know, in schools, they'll say, oh, or and so young people think agriculture is failure. And I want to change that. So me being a young woman as in this industry is, I think, a prime example. I've experienced many stigmas of people being like, farmer? Like, you farmer. 
And I'll be like, well, what does a farmer look like? A farmer doesn't necessarily have to be some old person that's, you know, withering in like the, the hot sun. I mean, it is the stereotype right now. And something has to change with that stereotype in order for us to continue producing sustainably and for us to think of these industries as a noble and a very dignified um, job. So I'm trying to empower farmers to understand that what they're doing is land stewardship. It's not just farming and producing food and creating harvests. It's also rethinking what a farmer looks like. What do we believe farmers and agriculturists are supposed to be? And that can be, you know, young people getting into agriculture and aspiring to be a farmer, but not necessarily being like out in the field farmer. They could, they could help foods production through design, through arts. They could help us through, um, I know, product packaging. They could help us through all sorts of different industries, whether it's land stewardship, forestry. And so there's a lot of opportunities for young people to get into the agricultural industry, but also the stereotypes that we have of knowledge systems. So sometimes we look at farmers and we see the stories that our lolas tell us. They tell us about, you know, planting rocks under sweet potatoes or planting according to lunar cycles. And because of Western knowledge systems, we've taken many of these for granted and they've been labeled as myths. But if you really look deep into why do we do those? It's actually centuries and centuries of peer review passed down from grandmother to grandson. And maybe they have a point, but because we've not been studying inherently these community relationships and our relationship to our nature, we don't think of the business sense of what our grandmothers are telling us. And maybe they have a lot of benefit, um, whether that's in, you know, organic soil production and cultivating the right creatures and biodiversity, or even in taking care of lands that in a way that matters. So I think that we need to look critically at how we've been perceiving farming. And maybe if we disassemble those stigmas, then we would unlock a whole new level of stewardship. And maybe the Philippines and all of our crazy wives tales and ideas that our lolas have been telling us have a lot of scientific contribution to the world for tackling climate change. And that's one of my platforms and advocacies. How are you already able to change lives in Cameroon and Soar? And do you have metrics already on how this project has positively affected the climate? Absolutely. So um, in terms of positively changing lives of farmers, I think the best way is to just really talk and sit down with the farmers. I've had families that are able to build houses because of the income that they made from cocoa. I've had aunties and uncles tell me about how they put their children through school. And these are substantive kind of tickers and key um, elements of progress, for my opinion, which isn't a typical key marker of like an impact metric for business. But for me, I think that matters because these are people that you know. Beyond that, it's also seeing how they've been changing their lifestyles. You know, from once upon a time, they were surviving from typhoon to typhoon, from, you know, paycheck to paycheck, from subsistence farming. And now they've got more income than they know what to do with. A lot of farmers would come to me and say, oh, you know, I bought a flat screen TV or I got laser eye surgery because of what we've done. And our farmers in a single trade fair, like a three to four day trade fair, would collectively earn around an average of 100,000 pesos per trade fair from their chocolate products. And all that income goes directly to them. And I think that's a very key part of disassembling, you know, unsustainable value chains that farmers are able to bring their products to market and are able to make products at the very farms with which they grew the products from, instead of that, you know, agency being taken away from them by, say, a middleman or a trader or another producer who would buy it from them for cheap. Now the farmers have the ability to, to dictate that, no, my chocolate is actually worth this much because this is the amount of effort that's been put into it. And so they're never selling at a loss because they have the ability to post, like, produce post-harvest. 
So in terms of environment metrics, I think it's best to just see how forests stitch together. You know, you see how we planted more than 150,000 trees, and that's the metric that I show. But obviously, we don't count all the trees that have been planted until we know they're properly growing. And it's also kind of those streams revive, the water sources, the enriched soil. The, the fact that our birds are so noisy at the farms, I think that's a good thing because it shows biodiversity is returning. If you like kind of pick a plot of soil, you see worms in the soil. Whereas once upon a time when I went to the backyard and it was a degraded rice field, I would pick a piece of soil and it was like rocks. There was nothing growing in it. So you see the return of biodiversity, but also you see the fact that these forests are cultivated for the long term. Like I mentioned earlier, many tree planting programs plant and then leave. But if you come here, you can see these forests integrated into our agricultural systems so that you almost can't tell where wildlife is and where you know farmland is. And I think that's a really positive taker towards the right direction of regenerative agriculture. What's the goal for the Cacao Project? Is it meant to inspire other similar movements worldwide or do you plan to cultivate this for... This is tailor fit just for the Philippines. I mean, it's a model that can be cultivated worldwide. It doesn't have to be cacao, right? It could be anything else that is suited to another climate or environment. And it's a system that can be replicated in parallel. And I think that's one of the beauties of it is that it's a hyper-local solution with global implications. And with a cacao project, I would love for it to be hyper-local and continue to be. We can scale it to different municipalities in the Philippines and the Biko region. It's designed specifically for the Philippines because anywhere that cocoa can grow in the Philippines, since we're in an equatorial region, the cocoa can grow, then it can be modeled there. And many other farmers can follow a similar model if they, if they feel like it. But of course, it takes a lot of investment and a lot of time and resources to do that. But also for the project itself, I wanted to transform the way we perceive farming, especially here locally. My vision for farming is like how we look at vineyards. You know, when you go overseas, you go to Napa Valley and Hunter Valley and you see these vineyards and they're an art form. They don't call it a farm. They call it a vineyard because you go there, you drink wine. I would like for people to come to Camarina Sur and, you know, pick cacao pods off of the trees themselves, see where it's grown, meet the farmers who grow it and sample their chocolates and go to different farms and see the different flavors of chocolate and how terroir affect it. And so you start perceiving farming less as production and more as an art form. And that closes the gap between us as a consumer buying chocolate off of a shelf and the farmers who make it. And it makes this whole process much more real and substantive. Actually, I do have a question. Um, Are the chocolates from the cacao project branded the cacao project or are they branded according to the farmers' businesses? So I have one that I make myself that's branded to the cacao project. So if farmers want to sell me their beans and I'll make it into the cacao project chocolate, but the farmers themselves also have their own. So we have like, um, Annen, we have cacaolicious, we have, there's a bunch of different, like there's so many lines of chocolate. And what's nice is the farmers will bring it to me and be like, can you taste this? Or can you check our packaging? And can you give us feedback? And then they'll take that and start making it into different um, products and kind of use that as a feedback mechanism. So the farmers have their own lines of chocolate and then we also have one too in case the farmers don't like some of the farmers don't want to produce chocolates okay where can you buy these so at the moment it's available here in san fernando it's also selling locally it's available here in camarina sewer and we also have it at trade fairs now and again so there's a big trade fair um it's in the san fernando booths but also one of our advocacies is that for many years filipinos would send chocolates to the philippines because they'd be like oh my god you have to taste these chocolates from abroad now our advocacy is we're producing chocolates that are more delicious than the chocolates abroad and then if anyone comes to visit us that's their way of being ambassadors of our chocolates to the world so come to visit us 
taste our chocolates, and then buy a lot so you can take it elsewhere. Typhoons and storms are part of the Filipino lifestyle because we've kind of gotten used to that because of where we are. So that's kind of a huge part of being Filipino. So how did being raised Filipino make you more climate aware? And how do those values inform the work that you do? Ah, yes. What I like to say here in Nico, all of us are raised as meteor- meteorologists and weathermen. We all know immediately what the tickers and signs are of typhoons and how to prepare for them and what we have to do. And I think that was very vital in terms of raising these. I knew that resilience is incredibly important and that we need to build resilience and adapt to the typhoons and that, you know, being raised Filipino with a concept of I need to be resilient, I need to move on and I need to build a better system every year and come back stronger is something that was really powering me. But it also made me question the systems that kept us resilient. Because ideally, in an ideal world, we wouldn't have to be resilient because all of these resources should be readily available to us. You know, basic services like food production and livelihoods and equitable, fair spaces should already exist as a a standard and not as a plus. So I wanted to create a system with the cacao project where that was our reality, where everything was made equitably, was made fair, where farmers had their own autonomy and agency to dictate where they wanted to go. And they had financial freedom to make their own decisions without relying on someone else. And that was really a big inspiration for me in beginning the cacao project. And being raised Filipino, it's I think it's just vital because it gave us this community aspect. You know, the whole Bayanihan concept of working together for the common good is something that was a very big driver in this business model, which normally under Western standards wouldn't exist. But I also have to thank the Western world for teaching me that farming and agriculture could be a very noble and amazing trait. I grew up in South Wales. And when someone said they were a farmer, you're immediately like, this person's very wealthy because they had land. And so that system and bridging all of these cultural knowledges together was really important for me. But being Filipino, the resilience, the Bayanihan culture, would have never, you know, without that, I would have never had the Cacao Project. Ms. Mabula's work includes empowering farmers to understand that what they do is land stewardship and not just food production. Farmers, she said, need to have the resources to thrive despite weather challenges and climate change. This has been another episode of B-Side. Subscribe now and enjoy a new episode every week.